this sanitizer. Thank you. Thank you, President Hagan. Wow, it's great to see you. Dr. Leibengood, thank you. We're here to celebrate the beginning of your biology major and, uh, and to talk about faith and how science works together. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with all of you. I want to thank you, the media folks, who I think have my stuff ready. And we're just going to walk through a couple of chapels uh, looking at this great world that God's made and how we figure that out as people of faith. But uh, I did want to, again, thanks, uh, Dr. Hagen, for your great uh, leadership here. Love and appreciate you. Known you for years. And good to see Carrie and bless you all. And I'd like my wife to stand uh, for a specific reason. Just stay standing a minute, honey. Um, North Cent I met my wife because North Central hired her as a music teacher 38 years ago to work with Larry Bach. And a year later, that's how I met her. A year later, we got married right here. And uh, I've been back numbers of times to speak here over the years, and usually Sandy's not able to be with me, but today she is. So here we are, where we got married. Walked in that aisle, walked out that aisle. They've, they've uh, kind of renovated part of this, but this is awesome to be back here. A lot of great memories. Love all of you. Love what you're doing as a, as a school. Um, big believer in this place, this institution, and your future. want to start here with just a question. Is it possible to believe in God and science? And the reason I put the question that way is because the new atheism that's emerged in the last 20 years is emphatically saying no to that question. In fact, it used to be when I was a kid growing up, I, I grew up in a spirit-filled church from the time I was a kid, never dreamed I'd be in full-time ministry, but I always loved science. Love science. Uh, and when I was a teenager, I was short, shy, not exactly your leadership kind of person. And I watched Star Trek too much, and I just love science. And back in those days, you know, I'd hear, well, maybe science is somewhat incompatible with the Bible. We're not sure. We're trying to figure this out. Now today, science is being deified as a replacement for faith, and you'll hear language like science is the enemy of faith, and especially faith is the enemy of science. To the point where now in studies, apparently among, among millennials for their hand-picked top five reasons for why they want to drop out of the church, whether they're legitimate or not, science is one of the top five reasons that people are leaving the church, young people are leaving the church today. And so this is a question that's more than, hey, let's entertain ourselves for 20 or 25 minutes this morning. This is, this is a critical question. There are science conferences now that, that almost sound like worship, look like worship services. We've got celebrity science speakers. We, we, everything, science is being deified, the end all uh, of, of every issue. And it's not, it's not the purpose of today to talk about the limitations of science. I actually spoke on that a number of years ago when I was here. But, but I want to just look at that simple question. Is science, is it possible to believe in God and and to believe in science. My experience as a student, two years at Winona State University, and then transferring as a junior to the, to the University of Minnesota and staying another seven years through my PhD in aerospace engineering, my experience was that the answer to that question is yes. I did not lose my faith. There were times where I would literally, especially in graduate school, I would literally walk out of science classes feeling like I'd been in a worship service. Because it's amazing what he's done. 
Look at Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. It's just like the, the beauty of a piece of art um, reflects on the genius of the artist. What we study in scientific investigation is we understand how the, how the universe works. I, I, I come out of classes just in awe. Like, I serve a pretty smart God. I mean, who could have ever thought all this? And just because you learn, by the way, how something works, doesn't mean you still don't need a designer. And so, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. And Romans 1.20, God's invisible qualities, especially His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So he talks about two characteristics of God, his capacity and his character. His capacity, his eternal power. His character, his divine nature. And he said somehow when we really understand and look into the world of nature, we see pictures, we see evidence of these two invisible qualities of God, his capacity and his character. They don't cause us to doubt God. They cause us to be in awe of him. And that's what science has been for me as I've studied it. And that's also why Max Planck, who was the pioneer of quantum physics, he put it this way. I'll put this quote on the screen. It is not by accident that the greatest thinkers of all ages were deeply religious souls. Our culture today does not largely believe that. And of course, we're trying to cancel history at some levels. And it's very inconvenient these days to hear in the media that it was men and women of deep faith in Jesus who led some of the greatest breakthroughs in the scientific world over the last several hundred years. But, but, but the father of quantum mechanics says it's not by accident because somehow our understanding of a God who has capacity and character and which brings alignment to everything he's associated with, that capacity allows us in an orderly way to actually accept what he's created for what it is and investigate it and not worry we're going to head, head into irrational dead ends because it instead will cause us to see that the creator responsible for this has immense capacity, uh, eternal power, and immense character, his, his divine nature. So this is where we go. Now right now, there are three primary fields of study in the scientific world. Um, Stephen Meyer, Dr. Stephen Meyer of Discovery Institute summarizes these really well. I'm going to borrow a little of his language, adapt some of my own. But these three major areas, let's just look at them quickly. The first one is cosmology, cosmology, which is telling us that the universe had a beginning. By the way, this is not cosmetology, you know, as much as we appreciate those beauticians. Um, this is not cosmetology, it's is ology of the cosmos. It's the study of the cosmos, cosmology. And most today, most scientists, uh, non-religious, right across the board, most scientists worth their salt today believe that the universe had a starting point. However, what's, what's fascinating is that 100 years ago, most scientists in the world believed there was no starting point to the universe. They believed in what we call the steady-state nature of the universe. It just always was and always will be. And if, if there's no beginning or end to the universe, of course, then you don't have to bother yourself with questions like how did it start and was there a creator. But just over 100 years ago, 
uh, two really important scientists came on this, on this scene, Albert Einstein and, and Edwin Hubble. And Einstein and Hubble started to change the way we look at the entire universe. Einstein, oh, just over 100 years ago, with a the theory of relativity, his specific and general theories of relativity, to his surprise, while most every scientist, including himself, believed in the steady state nature, no beginning or end to the universe, Einstein's relativity exp uh, equations, and I've, I've seen those equations, of course, from my own training, and, and they demand a starting point. And Einstein was so troubled by the theological implications of a starting point, because if you have a starting point, it infers there must be a starter and he, he, he believed in some, something out there, but, but, but the idea of personal God and starving babies in India and all this sort of thing, just, he just struggled with the idea of a personal God as we understand it, or a creator. And so, and so he was so troubled by the implications of the relativity equations that he had derived himself that he arbitrarily added an anti-gravity term to one side of the relativity equations to take out the starting point. Now, you don't have to be that smart to realize it's not very scientific to change equations arbitrarily just to fit your worldview. Einstein later took that term out of the, the equation called the cosmological constant. He took it out of his equations and called it the greatest blunder of his life. But the person who helped him with this was the astronomer Erwin, Edwin Hubble. And he went to Hubble's um, uh, big telescope in California, went to his observatory, and Hubble showed Einstein how the galaxies are actually spreading apart, that the universe seems to be expanding. Today we know the universe is expanding, and the rate of that expansion is, is actually increasing all the time. It's just like something pulling our universe apart. And having seen that that, of course, would incur a center, or starting point, that everything's moving out from, uh, Einstein left Hubble's um, uh, uh, observatory and famously announced to the world the universe had a beginning. Now, a hundred years later, the scientific community has moved light years towards the first three verses, the first three words of the Bible, which were in the beginning, in the beginning. Now, virtually every scientist believes in a beginning point to the universe. So that's what contemporary cosmology is telling us right now. And then we go to the other, another big area, and that's the, the field of physics, which is more my field, field of physics. And physics are telling us, the field of physics is telling us that the laws of nature are fine-tuned. They're not just approximate, they're not just random. They're not just, well, on this planet, the, 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 the ratio of protons to electrons is this, but on that planet, it's that. No, they're very fixed, and they're very fine-tuned. So in some cases, if they're off by a millionth of a millionth, the universe as we know it could not exist. It's just fine-tuned. It's like Pauli's fav famous uh, illustration. He said, you're walking down a path, and you see a watch on the ground. Your first thought is probably not, Oh, isn't it amazing how that watch just sort of assembled itself right there? No, that's not your first thought. Your first thought is, oh, someone lost their watch, right? I mean, you would never conceive that something as complex and minute and precise as a watch could just self-assemble all by itself by random chance. 
And this, this is what we're discovering about the universe. And it's actually backing atheistic scientists' walls to the back. Uh, back to the walls, right? I mean, there are, you don't hear about this in the media. There are actually scientists coming to faith in Christ for two convictions. Number one, we realize that the documents of the New Testament are, are old enough and more authoritative than, than any other documents in ancient history. And that our universe is designed so precisely that it's almost impossible this could have happened by chance. Let me, let me give you one of my favorite examples. It's our sun. Our sun shining today. Isn't that nice today? It may get up in the 60s today, thanks to our sun. As you know, our sun, the fire in our sun, is not from carbon fuels, right? Uh, it's not coal and oil being burned. that gives us the, the, the power of the sun. It's, uh, it's atomic fusion, nuclear fusion. What happens in our sun is that there's tons of hydrogen atoms. That's the most precise, that's, that, that's the most basic atom. It's just got a proton in the nucleus and an, an electron, right? Hydrogen. Okay, this is middle school physics, okay, you guys. This is middle school general science here. Don't, don't worry. Don't look. I can't see your faces, but your eyes are just doing bad things to me right now. So none of that. Okay, just, uh, you know, hydrogen, you know, a proton, an electron. And then we have what we call deuterium, which is heavy hydrogen, or heavy hydrogen, which is in the nucleus, you don't have a proton, you have a proton and a neutron, right? And then an electron. Our sun is full of heavy hydrogen, and under the incredible pressures and forces uh, and heat of the core of the sun, these, hydrogen at these heavy hydrogen atoms fuse into a new atom. So a proton, a neutron, an electron, plus a proton, a neutron, an electron, those fuse together into a new atom, which has two protons, two neutrons, and two electrons, right? That's not higher math either, right? And, and, and what's the element on the periodic table that has two protons, two electrons, and two neutrons? Helium, that's helium, right? So, so two hydrogen atoms fuse together in the core of the sun to, to form helium atoms, and you would think that the helium atom has the mass of the sum of the two hydrogen atoms, right? Like, let's say, it's not true, but let's say this hydrogen atom is one ounce and this hydrogen atom is one ounce. You put them together and uh, you still have the neutrons, the protons, the electrons, so probably the helium atom is two ounces, right? Not quite. The mass of the helium atom is only 99.3% the mass of, of the two hydrogen atoms in the beginning. What happened to the rest of it? Here's the most famous equation in the world. E equals mc squared. This was out of Einstein's relativity equations. E. E is for energy, right. M, mass. C, speed of light. C squared, speed of light times the speed of light. Einstein told us that energy and mass are interchangeable. So that when these two hydrogen atoms fuse to form a helium atom, a little bit of mass, 0.7 of 1% of the mass, turns into energy according to E equals mc squared. Because the speed of light, as we'll see tomorrow, is such a huge number, a little change in mass times such a huge number, c squared, means huge energy. And that's how we get energy. Now, I was reading a secular physics book, actually written by a professor of physics at the University of Minnesota. This was not a Christian book. And he writes, he said, he said, if that helium atom was 99.4% of the mass of the two hydrogen atoms, uh, there would not be enough energy given off from the sun for life as we know to exist. 
And if it was 99.2%, there would be too much energy given off and life as we know it could not exist. It's exactly 99.3%, the mass of the helium atom compared to the two original hydrogen atoms. And he writes, I'm going to read it right out of his book, the source of this amazing fine-tuning, he calls it fine-tuning, the source of this amazing fine-tuning of the basic properties of nature is the subject of current investigation. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. So physics is telling us that the laws of nature are fine-tuned. And then biology, you biologists knew I'd get to you eventually after all. This is what we're starting, right? And biology is telling us, the field of biology is life's coded with information. Life's coded with information. Let me show you a picture. I'll have some more pictures tomorrow, but we don't have too many today. But there's a bacterial flagellum. Flagellum is like that little tail coming out of the top of a cell. You have 10 trillion cells, cells in your body. Could be well more than that. They're just estimates. And that little kind of flag thing just kind of acts like a propeller and propels the bacterium cell through a medium. And if you'll notice, it's like a little motor. There's a rotor there. There's a shaft. There's flanges. There's a U-joint. And that thing spins like incredibly fast and it can go clockwise or depending on the dangers in the environment, it can go the other way and get that cell out of the way. It's unbelievable. And that, a little molecular motor. Now that's just an artist's depiction, but you look at the molecular structure and they're structured just like little machines, like nanomachines. It's unbelievable. In fact, people like Michael Behe has suggested that they're irreducible, like, like it can't like it's either all got to be there to work or it can't be there at all as he questions some of the tenets of evolutionary theory. But whether it's irreducible or not, it's ingenious. Our body is full of little molecular machines. Some of them look like car chassis and they move things around. It's unbelievable. And then the double helix DNA. This is a fairly familiar picture to most of us. Do you realize that in all the 10 plus trillion cells in your, in your body, you have a word that is about three billion with a B letters long and it describes who you are. And it's made of all kinds of little chemical words built from the pairing of, of chemical letters. Scientists just call them C, G, A, and T. And, and they, they're like that ladder up that, in, that connect the two coils of the du double helix. This is incredible. And the question is, where did this information come from? It's like you have mass and energy. You have a computer. That's your mass. You have electricity. That's your energy. But where did the software come from? I mean, where did information come from? And one of the top guys in the world, in the faith science debate, he's a devout believer um, and a mathematician. His name is John Lennox. He writes this. The information you are reading at the moment is carried on the physical medium of paper and ink or maybe a personal uh, 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 a computer screen or a little um, beautiful LED screen like you have behind me. But the information itself is not material. The information itself is not material. And as I argue elsewhere, the non-materiality of information points to a non-material source, the mind, the mind of God. So let's put the three statements up together. In the three primary fields of scientific investigation today in our world, cosmology is telling us that the universe had a beginning. Physics is telling us 
that the laws of nature are fine-tuned. And biology is telling us that life is coded with information. Now I want to ask you, do any of those statements take away your faith? No. Not a one. Does the fact the universe have, have a beginning? Genesis, first three verses, first three words of the Bible. Does the idea that our, our, the laws of nature are finely tuned, they would infer that intelligence was behind that and the fact that life is coded with information which itself is non-material. Not a one of those statements take away my faith or should take away your faith. Now, this is another whole topic we won't get into today. I, on the other hand, don't think any one of those statements absolutely proves there is a God because I think there's limit, limitations to the tools of science. But on the other hand, when they say faith is the enemy of religion today, and that, and that if you come, if you just let the science speak, you know, you cannot be a person of faith. That is absolutely true. You'll hear it in the media. You'll hear it in most of the scientific classrooms on a lot of the universities around America. But that does not, where science is going today, does not take away your faith. And so, Pastor Tim Keller kind of gives us an altar call. He says, Christians do not claim that their faith gives them omniscience or the ability to know everything. But they believe that the Christian account of things, <clears throat> creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, makes the most sense of the world. So here's his invitation to us. I ask you to put on Christianity like a pair of spectacles and look at the world with it. See what power it has to explain what we know and see. That is absolutely true. And then on top of it, remember what John wrote in John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, capital W. In the Greek, it's logos. Greek thinking, uh, you know, what was material was, was not good at best and possibly just an illusion, but everything that's ultimate is in the spiritual realm. And, and the logos is this ultimate body of, of knowledge and real, ultimate body of reality. We'd get our word logic from the Greek word logos. In the beginning was the logos, was the word, capital W. And the word was with God and the word was God. Turns out he's talking about Jesus. And he was with God in the beginning. And through him, all things were what? Made. All things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In Genesis 1.1, you have God the Father. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 1.2, you have God the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the deep. Uh, for the earth was formless, covered with water, dark, and the Spirit of God hovered there. And verse 3, and God, what? Spoke. And Jesus shows up. And Jesus becomes the active agent of creation. Jesus becomes the one through whom everything has been created, has been created. There you have it. Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2, and 1, 3. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God embedded the totality 
of his being in creating this universe that we are so amazed at. And it's the totality of God's being is behind whatever you study in science about that universe. And it does tell us about his capacity and his character. And then this absolutely stunning statement about a dozen verses later, and the word became flesh. The creator entered creation and he made his dwelling among us. And so the God who made it all can live in you and me. And we can, I pray that there will be some of you here today that will become world-changing scientists. God wants to give you, God wants to give you the key to curing diseases that are still perplexing humanity. Right now, there's no evangelical Christian in the top five physicists in the world that everybody else is listening to. God, actually no organizations that are trying to get Christian students to the place where they someday will be in the top five of the most influential scientists in the world. Why? Because the Jesus who created us, it all, he lives in you. So we say yes to him again. And yes to the world he's created. And yes to let's go for it for the glory of God. Amen.